funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, one-on-one -on -one with New Jersey's First Lady and now U.S. Senate candidate, Tammy Murphy. I'm genuinely entrenched in the communities across the state um, and can, can understand what, what is needed of me, what is wanted of me. Plus, brace yourself for toll hikes as the Port Authority unveils its billion-dollar-plus budget. Also, closing time. After 75 years, Nestle's famous freehold plant is closing its doors. Today's a very sad day. Uh, people have been filtering in and out, getting their final packages and getting their, uh, their paperwork in order. And uh, we've been saying goodbye to everybody. And fighting for equity, leaders of the legislative caucuses of color gather in Atlantic City this week looking to put their priorities front and center. We want to make sure that, um, that our communities are, are, are seen and that uh, uh, the people in power that exist that aren't a part of our communities see us, hear us, and recognize that there's strength in numbers. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Friday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. First Lady Tammy Murphy is already showing she's got sharp elbows as she looks to replace indicted Senator Bob Menendez in the 2024 race for U.S. Senate. Entering what will likely be a crowded field of contenders for the Democratic primary, that includes formidable candidates like Congressman Andy Kim and longtime political activist Larry Hamm. Murphy's already fending off skeptics who are questioning her past voting record as a Republican and criticizing her early support from the Democratic Party as nepotism. She's already locked in endorsements from the Democratic organizations in Hudson, Camden, Bergen, and Middlesex counties. But how will she fare in the rough-and-tumble world of state elections? Tammy Murphy spoke one-on-one -on -one with senior political correspondent David Cruz for this week's episode of Chatbox. I was at the league um, this week talking about you and this run and got some eye rolling and, and heard a lot of, I guess, resentment about you getting into the express lane and replacing particularly a long-serving Latino. A lot of this came from women of color. Do you acknowledge that that sentiment is out there and, and how have you or will you address it? What I would say to you is I will do what I've done always. I will be in the communities. I will talk to people. I will make sure that where there are concerns, particularly in the Latina community, which obviously feels uh, unhappy right now with the situation, I want to make sure I am the best possible voice and I'm the right choice uh, moving forward to represent everyone across the state. Anybody say that to you? Anybody express that resentment to you? To be honest with you, uh, can't can't really name anybody. Uh, I have had you know questions that people have asked, and I have answered them honestly. That's what I do. I'm yep. a very open book. I'm very honest, and uh, I, I've been encouraged. So, in your announcement video, uh, you talk about your privilege 
a wealthy white woman and, and how that gave you access in, in that case to top uh, rate health care. But is it fair to say that your race and your bank account and the fact that you're married to the governor of the state have made this run possible? I wouldn't say so. Um, I am truly going to earn everyone's vote. And I am going to make sure, as I said, that this is a broad coalition and that I'm genuinely entrenched in the communities across the state um, and can, can understand what, what is needed of me, what is wanted of me. So, no, I wouldn't say that. I'm going to share this quote. You've probably heard it. Uh, when Phil Murphy rushed, rushed to judgment and called on me to resign, it was clear that he had a personal vested interest in doing so. That's obviously part of a statement from incumbent Senator Bob Menendez. Does he have a right to all that indignation he's been showing? Listen, you know, David, I uh, the, the senator has done some really good things for the state. There is just no question about that. My view is that uh, these allegations are so serious uh, involving the judiciary, involving international relations and policy. I just think that at this point in time, uh, the senator does not have the moral uh, standing to um, reflect those those comments. Hmm. Uh, in a fundraising text message announcing your candidacy, um, you uh, say that uh, you're running against Bob Menendez. You don't mention Congressman Andy Kim. Is it your plan to ignore him? <laughs> no, there, there, there are several other people who are running. So uh, that, I think that's more for expediency's sake. And I think that um, that Congressman Kim, who I helped elect back in 2018, uh, and for whom I have a lot of respect, uh, he and I do agree that the um, that Senator Menendez should step down, and that we New Jerseyans deserve uh, better representation in Washington. Uh, our children deserve a leader who has the, um, has the ability to communicate honesty and has the um, backing of the public. And I just don't think that uh, that's where we are right now. And you can see the entire interview with Tammy Murphy this weekend on Chatbox with David Cruz. That's Saturday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. on NJPBS. There's an eye-popping new budget out this week from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. The Bi-State Transportation Agency is proposing to hike its annual budget by a billion dollars, with plans to go full steam ahead on new projects, putting spending at pre-pandemic levels. And as senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, it means drivers will be opening their wallets to help cover the costs. The Port Authority's proposed $9.3 billion spending plan includes planes, air trains and automobiles, plus developing a brand new Midtown bus terminal. To help pay for it all, the bi-state agency's raising tolls, another 25 cents to take the air train and an extra 63 cents at bridge and tunnel crossings, where peak tolls already cost how much? It's 15.75 peak. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so that's a lot. So you're going over $16. And transit advocate Felicia Parks Rogers warns that doesn't include congestion pricing. The Bi-State Agency tied its tolls to the Consumer Price Index, which rose 3.7% over the past year or so, nudging tolls higher. Parks Rogers advises... Get on New Jersey Transit. Get on PATH. It's cheaper. 
Let's invest in mass transit so that we don't have to pay those tolls. In fact, NJ Transit's bus ridership's back to 90 to 95 percent of pre-COVID levels, notes regional planner Zoe Baldwin. Bus is um, the majority of New Jersey Transit's traffic into Manhattan uh, for daily commuter ridership. We are really excited to see the bus terminal be kind of at the top of the Port Authority's priority lists um, because it's a really needed improvement. Baldwin says a new bus terminal should enhance customer experience with shops and green spaces. But the current facility only frustrates riders on a daily basis. They vent on X. Francis posted gate 203's packed down the escalator waiting on the 855. Alana asked, why is the ramp into Port Authority taking longer than the drive into the city? The design of the terminal itself was not meant to handle the amount of traffic that we have going through there, either pedestrian traffic, the people going to the buses or the buses themselves. The 2024 Port Authority budgets a billion dollars more than last year's. It devotes 3.9 billion to operating expenses, 1.8 billion to debt service and 3.6 billion to capital projects. Those include developing an optimal design for a new midtown bus terminal, replacing Path's payment process with a faster tap-and-go system, updating all three regional airports, and revamping the air train. Port Authority is also spending $220 million on climate resiliency and flood mitigation. It's in everybody's interest in this time of extreme climate change and extreme congestion to reduce car usage. And electric vehicles are are, are not enough. That's not that's not the full answer. The agency's also mindful of growing security threats. It'll spend almost a billion dollars on ramping up safety and cybersecurity. Folks can comment on the Port Authority's website before the board votes December 14th. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. The annual League of Municipalities conference in Atlantic City is officially in the books. And after 108 years of holding the event, the convention is still having first hosting a panel with leaders of the state legislative caucuses of color to talk about how they can work together to put their priorities front and center in Trenton. Raven Santana reports. So if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. This is what this event was about. Kamal Sinha, director of ACLU New Jersey, hosted the first ever panel discussion with leaders of New Jersey's legislative caucuses of color, the Legislative Black Caucus, the Legislative Latino Caucus, and the Asian American and Pacific Islander Legislative Caucus. This is the first time that leaders from New Jersey's caucuses of color got together to talk about what our collective agenda can be going forward. Uh, New Jersey is one of the most diverse states in the country. Uh, by the end of this decade, it will be a majority-minority majority state. The event that drew more than 100 leaders from a variety of municipalities and leadership was held at the Hard Rock in Atlantic City as part of the New Jersey League of Municipalities annual conference. 
Sinha says the purpose of his panel was to explore how communities of color can partner to build a collective agenda to reflect New Jersey's diverse population. We want to make sure that um, that our communities are, are, are seen and that uh, uh, the people in power that exist that aren't a part of our communities see us, hear us, and recognize that there's strength in numbers. For many, the fight for equity wasn't for political reasons, but more personal ones. It is personal. There, there is a, a fear. Um, there's reports of over-enforcement. We've done some great work in trying to create and destigmatize how law enforcement engages, especially with our young black men. There's, there's data on it. We got a number of African-American and uh, Latinas in office. We have Asian Pacific Islander women in office, but we're not the speaker, we're not the Senate president, we're not the governor, which is what you heard. Those positions, those executive positions, hold the power of setting the agenda. We need to ensure that uh, we look at uh, issues such as juvenile justice reform. It hits every one of our community. The disparity that exists among that population, it's something that I feel very passionate about, something that I have focused as a legislator for a very long period of time. In addition to the panel, the audience also had an opportunity to ask questions. Advocates I spoke with say it's crucial that representatives of communities of color come together to prioritize issues of justice in the interests across the state. I think the existing power structures in New Jersey sort of place the needs and the priorities of different communities almost on a checklist. Well, we've done something for women's groups, we've done something for kids, we've done something for seniors, we've done something for immigrants. And what that tends to miss is that so many people live at intersections of all of those communities, right? We have one of the worst racial wealth gaps in the country. Black and brown people in New Jersey are facing kitchen table issues that are much worse than what we often think about. So those are really fundamental here and we needed to be talking about them. We need to be united in that. We need to be, we need to be here and we need to be really clear about the needs of the communities here in New Jersey and what we need to see from our elected officials at every level of government, all of whom are basically here right now in Atlantic City. Advocates and officials alike now hope that the conversation, support, and partnership will help get vital legislation passed for communities of color. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Raven Santana. Representation isn't just lacking in the legislature. There's also big disparities on state and local boards where members get appointed. A new report released by the Rutgers Center for Women in American Politics finds New Jersey falls painfully short in terms of diversity among appointed public officials. The report calls it an alarming finding given the power and authority of those boards and shows no other demographic comes even close to the number of white men who make up most of the representation of appointed positions. For more on the report, I'm joined by Jean Sinzak, Associate Director of the Rutgers Center for American Women in Politics. Jean, welcome. L let's get into this. So your report largely finds that these boards don't look like the people they're representing. What do they look like? Who is sitting in these seats? We found that um, perhaps unsurprisingly to some people, uh, white men are dramatically overrepresented on these boards and commissions. They make up about 45% of the seats, despite being about 27% of the state's population. We found that women are underrepresented. There are about 33% of board seats, so that's one in three seats are held by women. Uh, we also 
broke it down by different racial and eth uh, race and, and ethnicity, and we found um, that there's dramatic disparities uh, among the groups. And in fact, no group comes even close to the level of representation of the population on appointed boards and and uh, commissions. Um, for example, Asian Americans are 11% of the state's population, but only 3% of the seats on these boards, which basically means that you know we have um, many groups in the state who are not represented when it comes to you know important policy making um, decisions at these tables, and we really need to do more to encourage and and uh, more groups to join the table and also to, to bring some transparency to the process. Yeah, what type of boards and commissions are we talking? What kind of decision-making power do they have? They are regulatory boards. They regulate everything from environmental issues to our transportation. There's, you know, New Jersey Transit, the Turnpike Authority, to the Arts Commission, uh, to various commissions studying you know, working on water quality issues and safety, there's consumer boards. Um, all of these are really important and they play a role in government and affect the lives of New Jerseyans. This was the first study of its kind. Why is that? First of all, it's hard to study demographics. I mean, you have to, we largely rely on, um, you know, self-identification and surveys and it's hard to get people to answer surveys. Um, but, you know, one of the recommendations of the report is that the state collect this information uh, upon appointment. And I know the Murphy administration has started doing that. It's a step in the right direction. Um, but it's just, it's hard to get this information. It just doesn't exist. And it's, you know, to build a data set from scratch is, is a hard endeavor. But it needs to be something that the uh, state government is committed to going forward. Yeah, but I'm guessing without that, I'll say oversight or that data in front of you, it's hard to make any changes in terms of representation. So what else do you all recommend? I think there are about 475 boards listed on the website and almost 100 of them were inactive. So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's hard then if you're someone who wants to make a difference, but you don't know this board is inactive. Uh, you wouldn't, it wouldn't help you at all, right? Um, so one of the recommendations is, you know, cleaning up the list. Another recommendation is posting vacancies, finding more ways to educate the public about these, um, you know, opportunities. And then it has to be intentional. You have to collect data on the demographics of who's serving and do a study like this to be able to say, here are the representation gaps. And here's the work we need to do and then do some intentional recruiting to bring in those voices that are missing. All right, Jean Sinsnack for us. Uh, Jean, thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's the last day of a 75-year-long historic chapter for workers in Freehold. They're handing in their badges and shutting down production at the landmark Nestle plant. The factory was the only remaining location producing coffee in the U.S., but the Swiss brand announced in June it's moving production facilities to Mexico and Brazil, leaving 227 workers out of a job and the Monmouth County town without the iconic smell of coffee wafting through the air. Ted Goldberg has the story. Today's a very sad day. Uh, people have been filtering in and out, getting their final packages and getting their... Uh, their paperwork in order and uh, we've been saying goodbye to everybody and and uh, sharing stories about uh, all the experiences they had. For most employees at the Nestle plant in Freehold, today was their final shift. Nestle announced this plant would close down, so now workers are retiring or looking for new jobs. 
something many of them haven't done in a long time. I started here in 1978, so that puts me at 45 years. 12 hours a day, seven days a week sometimes, you know, so it's a lot. Put a lot into it. I raised my family, you know, and being 45 years is my life, you know. The Nestle plant was an institution in Freehold, a place where some families sent multiple generations to make instant coffee. My father started here in 1972. Uh, he retired after 25 years, and then uh, I came here in 78, along with two uncles that uh, came here and put, also put 25 years in. We started making Nescafe coffee uh, after the war, so it, it became really a, a necessity for Freehold here. Employees I spoke to weren't shocked to hear the plant was closing down, and they suspected it for a while. They say they're upset at Nestle for not communicating with them clearly. There was no representation from corporate that came down here to give people uh, some information. It was all filtered down. It was rumors, conjectures. In response to this story, Nestle sent a statement that reads in part, We're honored to have been part of the freehold community for the past 75 years. We worked collaboratively with government and Teamsters Local 11 to host job fairs, resume and interview workshops, and offer professional headshots. That wasn't nearly enough for some local leaders. Freehold Councilwoman Sharon Schutzer says she was saddened and sickened by the closing. I am angered by the way the company handled the closing. I think it was profoundly unfair to the town, but more importantly to the employees. The impact to the town and to the employees is immeasurable and devastating. You think that they would have someone from represent, representative of the company come down here and, and speak to people, but we haven't seen anyone come down here. And especially today, on a day like this where it's a final day, you don't see anyone thanking people for their service or, or, or saying that, you know, they, they appreciate all the things they've done. It's a shame they're going to Mexico, you know. It's, it's you know, politicians got to do more with this. A bittersweet goodbye for many employees, while some are sticking around until the plant officially closes for good in late March. In Freehold, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. On Wall Street, stocks slid today, but built on this month's solid gains. Here's how the markets closed for the week. And finally, food pantries around the state are ramping up their efforts to feed people ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. The Trenton Area Soup Kitchen is working to make sure every family will have a meal on their table, despite the surge in food insecurity statewide. This year, they're hand-delivering several hundred prepared dinners to those residents most in need. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports as part of our ongoing series, Hunger in New Jersey. I'm going to be able to cook, and that's the joyful thing, just being able to cook it and have people enjoy it. That makes me feel like I'm a beautiful mother, that I can provide for my son. Lisa Lewis and Marlena Tyler just received their bags of free food from the Trenton Area Soup Kitchen, or TASK. They're among the hundreds today receiving a Thanksgiving meal that they couldn't afford on their own. With the way the economy is now, it's hard to buy food and everything, and I thank the Trenton Area Soup Kitchen so much. They don't know, you know, I'm able to cook dinner, have family over, and without them, it wouldn't be possible. The baskets contain turkey, pie, stuffing, uh, fruit, 
potato, vegetable, everything you need to make a, a Thanksgiving meal. Some of the baskets are picked up directly from the soup kitchen in downtown Trenton, but for many of the residents who receive services from TASC, getting to the center is too difficult, especially for the elderly, the disabled, and those without cars. That's where Amazon has stepped in to help today. Our partnership with Amazon enables us to deliver many more baskets that we wouldn't be able to deliver without their help. Um, and Escher Street, where we're located, is a very small street. Navigating it um, with too many cars is, is dangerous, so we like to try to get as many baskets delivered as possible. Jamie Parker says it takes a whole lot to pull off the coordination of this food collection and delivery. A variety of organizations have put together the, the donations. Um, and then we've got a variety of folks helping with the delivery. So we've got students from TCNJ Bonner. Um, we've got uh, the, some of the employees from Amazon helping. We've got some task staff. We've and while the support that they're receiving around this Thanksgiving holiday is tremendous, COO Paul Jensen says the need this year has been 70% higher than last year, staggering considering hunger and food insecurity have steadily risen since the pandemic. The beginning of the month looks like the end of the month used to, you know, as because our month builds. It starts lighter and ends on a heavier note because how people get benefits. So now the beginning is like 400 average. They can serve up to 700 meals by the end of the month. And it's not just around the holidays when people tend to be the most generous. From Thanksgiving through Christmas is when people want to give the most. And we, we appreciate that, but we would like to have food coming in all year round, donations. In the end, about 500 of these prepared bags will go out to the community today. Another 500 hot meals will be served here on Thanksgiving Day, and about 2,000 hot meals will be sent out to community centers and other locations around this Trenton area on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, demonstrating just how great the need is here. In Trenton, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. Support for the medical report is provided by Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. That's going to do it for us tonight. This weekend, be sure to tune into Reporters Roundtable. David Cruz talks to Senate President Nick Scuteri about what's on tap for Democrats' agenda during the lame duck session. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10. I'm Brianna Venozzi. For all of us at NJ Spotlight News, thanks for being here. Have a great weekend. We'll see you right back here on Monday. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. And by the PSCG Foundation. Our future relies on more than clean energy. Our future relies on empowered communities, the health and safety of our families and neighbors, of our schools and streets. The PSEG Foundation is committed to sustainability, equity, and economic empowerment. Investing in parks, helping towns go green, supporting civic centers, scholarships, and workforce development that strengthen our community.